Hi, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our broadcast. Have you ever wondered if you were really saved? Is there a way to know for sure? Our sermon today is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-24, through 24, and it addresses the whole matter by answering the question, How can you know? Let's listen in to Assurance, part 7 of our ongoing series in the letters of John, called, What's Love Got to Do With It? Uh, I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 19 through 24. Let me read this to you. By this we shall know what, are, what we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The reading of the word of God, brothers and sisters. Question I get frequently, we've talked about this a few times before, um, but it's a question that, that I've had on my mind at times as well. How do we know we're saved? What evidence do we have that we are actually going to heaven, that we are the beneficiaries of the promises of God? How can we be sure that we are saved, that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. So there's a question before us this morning is how can you know? Now, John's letter, if if you've been following this, it it is actually incredibly profound. Uh, He's gone to the root of what the teaching of Jesus Christ is, gone to the basics, um, and and we kind of got right to the middle of everything, the focus of the entire letter when he calls us to love one another. that's the heart of John's letter. He's writing to the churches in Turkey, and, and they're struggling with some bad teachers. Uh, they were drawing folks away, causing confusion. There was a whole lot of tension in the church, and these false teachers were bearing really bad fruit, and they were exhibiting a lot of things. Unfortunately, none of them were the love that John speaks of, the, the godly love, the love that the Greeks would call agape love it's a, a godly love a love that originates on technically agape love is a love that originates on behalf of the lover with no regard for the beloved god loves because he loves and for no other reason so john's encouragement to the church was to embrace the truth and to practice love to make it part of their life, to show the world that that Christians were something different, that they were set apart, that they were not self-centered, that they were capable of keeping an eternal mindset that allowed them to sacrifice for others the way Jesus sacrificed for them. So there are blessings and benefits that go along with doing the things that John says we should do. And today we're going to take a look at a couple of them. Our sermon today is called Assurance. This is part seven of our series in First John, Second John, and Third John, What's Love Got to Do With It? So we're going to see two incredible truths today. One is God is greater, and we'll see that in verses 19 through 22. And then we'll see 
God is in us, and that's in verses 23 and 24. So you can tell by the size of the passage today, we're just flying through 1 John. We hope to be done by the end of the year. So let's take a look at the fact that, that the biblical truth that God is greater, starting in verse 19. And uh, John says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, frequently when we see by this, we want to back up and take a look at it. But if you take a look at the syntax, I don't want to get too technical on this. He's saying by this, comma, and then he's going to tell you by what. So by, by this, whatever he's going to talk about, we are going to know the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So the, the, the verse can be a little problematic because a lot of biblical scholars think that John is making some kind of digression here. That he's been talking about love, unconditional love, what the body of Christ should look like. And now he's talking about something else. But that, that just doesn't make sense to me. And it, it would be a very unusual tactic given how detailed and repetitive John has been throughout his letter so far. You want to talk about some repetition? Take a look at this passage when you get a chance later on at lunchtime. See how many times the word commandment is in there. And he's kind of been working up to this. What do we do with these commandments? So I think the verse has to be taken in the context of verses 11 through 18. And in those verses, John has told us to love sacrificially the way Jesus did. And he's showing us the way. He's saying, make your life about serving and helping others. Don't make your life about getting ahead. Don't make your life centered on you. Make it centered on God and helping others. And here he says, when you do this, when you do this type of sacrificial love that Jesus gave us, by this, in other words, as you practice this now, you will know, and you got to pay attention to the tenses here, because it's future. As you do this, you will know, you will come to know that we are of the truth. And so what John is saying is, as you practice these things, you're going to know that we're telling you the truth. You're going to see that what we're saying is right. But you got to put it into practice. You can't just, just accept it. So he wants them to know that what they're teaching and what they're living in is the truth. And this is obviously opposed to what these false teachers are teaching them. So he says, once you begin doing this, then, then your hearts, our hearts will be assured when we stand before God. We will stand before God with confidence and we're walking in the truth. Uh, so the NIV says it, that this will set our hearts at rest before him. Uh, so set our hearts at rest, assured um, that the whole word there, the Greek means our hearts are going to be persuaded. In other words, our actions will prove to be true. They will support the truth. And as we practice these things, our hearts become reassured. They become confident. Now we all want some reassurance, don't we? Aren't we looking for that? Some, some affirmation that what we're doing and the things we're saying and the way we're living is the right way to do it. And the word of God brings that reassurance. But we all have times, we all have times when we wonder. We all have times when we doubt. And should we ever doubt it, should that that wonder, that doubt ever come into our minds, John wants us to remind of something. He says, for when, whenever our hearts condemn us, this is the doubt that he's talking of. 
our hearts condemning us. Something inside of us says something's wrong. Something inside of us said this may not be true. I may not be part of the body of Christ. Something deep inside says maybe you're not good enough. Those times when our own heart causes us to question, causes us to wonder if we're ever really been transformed at all. He says, when that happens, I want you to remember this. God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Mark sang about God's omniscience. I love the fact that he knows everything. Most of the time. We all experience these times of doubt. Are we really saved? Am I doing enough? Did I mess this up? Did I somehow lose my salvation? Am I good enough? Our hearts can at times be our harshest critic and our most condemning judge. Tell me if I'm not right. John is saying God is greater than your heart. And what he really means is this. God judges our hearts, not us. God judges our actions, not us. And we can worry about what that judgment looks like or if we live up to it. But in the final analysis, we are not judged by our hearts, but by God's heart. We are not saved, nor is our salvation maintained, sustained by what we do or what we think or how we feel. Now, I've been talking to you about this for a long time. That stuff doesn't determine our eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny is determined by the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And we need to stop thinking that somehow we can undo that work or somehow we can miss it or somehow that we thought we were worthy and we're not because any of us who look at our lives, we're going to come up short. We're saved by Jesus' sacrifice and by his resurrection. And our assurance of that salvation is founded in grace, not in works. And God knows everything. And watch this. He actually knew everything He knew everything that you and I would do, every thought that we would have, every stumble that we would make, every failure that we would experience, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us anyway. He still gave us his son. And all he asks, all he asks of us is to confess and believe that we understand that he's the only son of God. Can it be that simple? Can it be that simple to assure our eternal destiny, to confess our sins and believe that Jesus Christ is the only son of God? Oh, there must be more. There's more things we should do. There's more things we should want to do. We should have a desire to show some appreciation for the grace we've received. But if there's anything more than confess and believe, then we're not saved by grace. 
We're saved by something else we do. We need to think about this. See, John, John has presented quite a problem. He said, you know, there are false teachers among you. They sound good. They look good. Rose up from within the church. They're your buddies. You worship with them every Saturday, Sunday, whenever you worship. How do you know? How do you know? Well, you know if they're confessing the same thing you are. And then the question becomes, what are you confessing? If we understand the nuts and bolts of our salvation, that it is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, then we should know that our hearts don't have the authority to condemn us. John says as much in verse 21, he said, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Our confidence in our salvation, our trust is in God, not in our capability to be righteous or our efforts to be righteous or our willingness to control our thoughts or the purity of our hearts. If our confidence was in those things, we'd all be doomed because we all drop the ball every now and then. Amen? But our trust is in God, and our trust is in God being God, acting according to who he is, not who we are. And we should embrace that for all that it's worth. Because it's worth eternity, brothers and sisters. It's worth eternity. And when we do embrace that, verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> so, so John's saying, if I do all this stuff, I get a motorhome. See, that's the problem with the teaching that's in the church at that time. They had reversed the focus from being on God to being on themselves. So we don't have to look too far in scriptures to see that when we ask for things, we will receive them, that there are some conditions to that. We can't just ask for anything, no matter how sincere we are. We get what we ask for with some conditions. First, first condition, we have to ask in the name of Jesus. Now listen to me carefully, please. We need to resist the temptation to just tack it in Jesus' name on the end of our prayers. <laughs> this isn't just say those three words in Jesus' name, and then we give whatever we want. We have to understand the name to the Jews. Now, we've talked about this frequently, okay? It means that we pray in God's will. It means that, that we, we have to we have to understand the character and nature of God. John says in his gospel in chapter 14, starting with verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there's the goal when we ask in his name that what we should be asking is that the Father will be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So we pray in God's will, not in our desires. We pray according to his character and nature, not our perceived needs. It's not just a phrase that we throw in at the end of a prayer. We pray according to his will, in obedience to his word. Second condition. Jesus says... In John chapter 15, the gospel of John chapter 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this is more than just knowing the scriptures. This is living in the scriptures, living according to God's word, living a holy life that is set apart from the world with our eyes set on eternity, our eyes set on Jesus Christ. When we pray with our eyes set on Christ, God will give us what we're asking for. So John's commendation to the church here is to understand that God is greater than the false teachers. His teaching is better than what they're teaching. He's greater than our, watch this. He's greater than our failures. He's greater than our doubts. And if we're striving to live in him, in his holiness, striving to live for him, even though though we may stumble and fall short from time to time, then we can be assured that our salvation is in him. That's what this verse tells us. You know, it's hard for us to accept that. It's hard for us to accept that type of assurance. And I'll tell you why. Because every time human beings assure us, we set ourselves up for a disappointment, don't we? Anybody remember the meeting on the mall, Promise Keepers, 1997? Supposed to be a million men, nobody counted. Secretly, we all were. <laughs> but we had a group from Warrington go. We were going as a church of Warrington. We had a meeting down at Taft Scott's church. And I stood there in front of them as the organizer said, we're going to leave the commuter parking lot at 6 o'clock. 6 a.m. If you're not there at 6 a.m., we're going to leave you. And I had everybody, we were doing an antiphonal thing. I love that word. I would say, when are we leaving? 6 o'clock. When are we leaving? 6 o'clock. When are we leaving? 6 o'clock. What if you're not there at 6 o'clock? Then you leave us. Then you leave us. Then you leave us. I slept in. (laughs) I get a phone call at 5 after 6. Where are you? I'm like, oh, my gosh. See, we can't depend on each other. With all the assurance I gave that crowd that we would leave at 6 o'clock, I was the one that was late. But that's not God's word. That's not God's word. God has proved millions of times in the last 6,000 years or so. Yeah, I believe in the six-day creation. (laughs) But he's proved millions of times that he is faithful and true and steadfast. When God tells us something, we can be assured that it's true. He's not going to show up late. He's not going to fail in his promises. Other people will lay you down all the time. But we can be assured of what God says because he's proven himself. Not that he has to, 
but he wants our hearts to be at rest. So he tells us that if we've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe that he's the only son of God, that we can be assured of our salvation. Our second truth is God is in us, in verse 23. John says, and this is his commandment. It, he's, he's repeating himself again. I mean, he's gone over this several times, but he's moving forward as well. Because he says, and this is his commandment, comma, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what he just added. We're commanded to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I want to I linger here for just a moment. Uh, because John says we're to believe. And scripture calls us to more than just a passing belief. We are to have faith in him. We are to trust him, not just his name, but who he is and what he's done. So again, when we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we believe in everything that he was sent to do, everything that he accomplished, everything that he taught, everything that he showed us, and every promise he made to us. When we believe in his name. Okay, well, who is he? He's God's only son. Let that linger for just a moment. Let it sink in. He's God's only son. A relationship so close that we have a hard time understanding it. Because he's not only God's son, he's God as own. So we all know this, but it's far more profound than we think. Because John calls believers to believe that we should love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, this isn't a suggestion, okay? Because when we hear we're called to love one another, I feel like I've got to conjure up some fuzzy feeling about everybody. I don't think God's saying have a fuzzy feeling about everybody. I think he's saying love people the way I love you. This isn't based on how we feel about other people. It calls us to make a conscious effort to exhibit love to everyone, even the church, even to those who are not like us. Well, that's hard. We're called to love those who don't fit into our social groups. And we're called to love those who rub us the wrong way. Those who live differently than we do. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd admit that a lot of us have a tendency to think that people who see things differently, who worship differently, who live differently, aren't really in the church so we don't have to love them. All that exempts them from our love. It's so much easier to love folks who are like me Isn't it? Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 43, you've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And here in this short letter, John tells, tells us that this type of love is a love that loves not just the lovable, but the unlovable. And it starts, careful, because it starts with the church. And furthermore, in verse 24, back in 1 John, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The love that John says we are commanded to exhibit is a sign that the character and nature of God is in us. But we have to work at it. We have to be conscious of it. It doesn't come naturally. But it's a sign that God's spirit dwells in us. Did you hear that? God's spirit dwells in us. Let's linger here for a moment. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke all of this into existence, the one who formed you in the womb. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've confessed your sins, he's come to live in you. Oh, we know the words, but do we understand the magnitude of them? You know, I used to work for a couple of football players. 1989, Joe Jacoby and Mark May had just won the Super Bowl. Giant people. Mark was a small one. He was only 6'4". They came to our house, sat in our living room. I wanted to put a sign up. Joe Jacoby and Mark May from the Washington Redskins, recent winners of the Super Bowl, were in my house. Mark May ruined a chair he gave us. <laughs> I mean, some famous person came to your house, wouldn't you want people to know it? Isn't it the same for the God who created us? It's taken up a home inside us. There should be some evidence of that. I was talking to somebody last week. You know, I used to work for Joe Jacoby. Who? (laughs) Joe Jacoby, Washington Redskins. What? Oh, you mean the commanders? No, I mean the Redskins. (laughs) See, people forget those things. But God lives inside us. He's taken up dwelling inside of us. And that should be part of our day, every moment of our day, every expression of what we do. Creator of the universe living inside us. It's incredible. We should be putting that on display with every opportunity that we get. So we've seen these two truths. First one, God is greater John knows that his teaching of the truth is going to cause doubts for some, maybe a lot of people. 
But he's just laying it out there and saying, do you accept this? Now, as we begin to embrace the truth, we need to understand a couple things about the truth. Number one, it's never a weapon. We're not called to bludgeon people with the truth. We're called to hold the truth up as a mirror. We should be looking into it and seeing how deeply we embrace this. We measure ourselves, and when we do, when we do measure ourselves honestly and sincerely, we are going to come up short. We are going to find out that we are not worthy of a loving God. But the fact, watch this, the fact that we're willing to use the truth as a mirror is the assurance of our salvation. That we're willing to look at it and say, I don't measure up. And way up in the back of our minds, something says, this is what grace is all about. Watch what I'm doing here. And the fact that we're willing to subject ourselves to that shows us that the Holy Spirit is in us and it should cause us to go down on our knees with a deeper appreciation for God's grace and a profound sense of who he is in light of who we really are. Now, the Apostle Paul knew this. If you're thinking right now, but I don't measure up. Paul knew this, Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether or not Paul's talking about what he was and all this sort of thing, but this is all present tense, wretched man that I am. As Paul is writing Romans, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he asks this profound question and then answers it in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm delivered through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul sees himself as wretched and he's saved through Christ. Thanks be to God. And our second truth was God is in us. John says that everyone who keeps his commandments lives in the nature of God. God's nature, God's essence lives inside of him or her. Yeah, we all struggle like Paul did, battling constantly between what we want to do and what we know we should do. But once we realize that the desire, the desire to do the right thing, the desire to do the godly thing, the desire to do the holy thing, that desire in itself is the evidence and assurance of our salvation. And once we begin to embrace that, everything changes. So how can you know? I got another question for you. What evidence do you need? What are you looking for? Does God need to prove himself to you? I don't think so. Does God need to give you more evidence than you already have? Are you willing to accept what his word says about you? And if you are, then the next most important question that any of us will ever answer, do you want Jesus Christ as your savior? Do you long for him? Do you have a desire for him? And if you do and you confess your sins, if you believe what the word says 
about Jesus Christ, about what he did on the cross, then God says, you're saved. God says, I've got a place for you in heaven, and when my son comes back, he's going to bring you here. So the question you have to answer as we leave here today, who are you going to believe? You're going to believe God? You're going to believe what your heart tells you. Jeremiah says our heart is deceptive and evil. We're going to go to the communion table, but Mark has a song that he's going to play for us to prepare our hearts. I normally ask you all to stand, but I think in preparation, getting ready for communion, just the whole idea of um, personal reflection and getting right with the Lord. Um, Why don't you remain seated? Amazing. 
ask the deacons to come forward. We'll hand out the bread. We'll take it together. And then we'll hand out the juice to take it together. If ever a passage should cause us to linger over what it meant, a passage that tells us that God is greater and God is in us lends itself to this moment, doesn't it? God is greater than anything we can imagine. His sacrifice nullifies everything we've done. Now he's come to live in us. And this, this little crust of bread, we call it a memorial participation. It reminds us of that sacrifice. But at the same time, we participate in it. We ingest it. We take it into ourselves in recognition of the fact that the living God is inside us, drawing us together, molding us and shaping us into a bride for his son who gave himself up for her to, to sanctify her and wash her in the word. So that moment where Jesus says, take and eat, I don't think they got it. But we do. We do. Take and eat.
You see, what makes this moment possible is that blood that was shed on the cross. Scriptures told us a long time before Jesus came that there was no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Those sacrifices didn't save anybody, but the one sacrifice to end all sacrifice saves the church. Jesus holds up the cup and said, this is my blood. He was saying, this is how you get saved. This is how your sins are remitted. And it reaches from that smoky room 2,000 years ago right into our hearts here today. Take and drink. Stand with me. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with the next passage. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.